Hello Revelers. So here comes our first Pride, official Pride for the month of June episode. And I've timed it so that it comes out just before Father's Day too. So please help me welcome Brian Knurk, who will hopefully inspire you and all those that you can share this with to live your best, most authentic, loving, happy tasty, fun life. Well, hello and welcome to Revel Revel. Today, I have my longtime friend, Brian Knurk on the show. Welcome, Brian. Hi, Lauren. It is wonderful to see you this morning. You are the best part of my Monday. That's for damn sure. Oh, and you had just said that you didn't know what we're doing. So this should be fun. We're going to wing it. We're going to wing it. I actually have, you know, a whole bunch of ideas, but the point is I really just want to hear you talk about your life and see what comes to mind and see how the f- conversation flows organically. Okay. So as we know, we start off because I know you listen to the show. Uh, we start off with how we know each other. Duh, Mount Carmel. So this is really funny because I've heard you on multiple podcasts say you don't, you have a terrible memory. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about it the other day and you and I are in the same boat. So I don't remember a lot of high school. I'll be brutally honest. And I think that in my life, actually, my memory is all positive. I try and maintain kind of this positive attitude towards life. So I have very few really negative memories. And honestly, they just get fuzzier and fuzzier, I think, as we get older. That's a blessing. I think so. Um, I think, and it also gives me, I hope, a really good outlook on life. My father was visiting this weekend. So everybody's had their COVID vaccines and my son is getting married this summer. So he was in town with his fiance for the bridal shower. So my folks came up because my mother was invited to the bridal shower. My father's 84 and he is in really good shape. And he just has this, has always had this tremendous, wonderful, positive outlook on life. And I really hope that I can hold on to some of that positive outlook on life. And that's kind of, kind of my goal. So when we go back and look at high school and think about how we know each other, I don't know when we first met. I have a, I don't either. I have a memory that we did floats together for homecoming. I have a memory that we were both involved in, I'm going to say high school council, I think usually senior council, but high school council. And I think we had civics together. We definitely had civics together. You sat behind me. Okay. That's sort of my memory. And I was thinking it was civics, but I I don't know. So as I started to think about your podcast and your overarching concept of serendipity, you know, or fate or whatever it is. I, I, and I thought, when I think about serendipity and fate, I think about a couple of different things. One of which is how much is faith? How much is fate? And where does that free will and that destiny kind of fall? And I don't know that I have a, a good answer for that, but I do have life experiences that, that tie things together. 
And I'm starting out this way because you're part of that life experience that moved me very forward in, in my life. I think they're very much intertwined. I think that we have a certain amount of control, but I also think that there, that the universe sends us signals if we're willing to listen to the signals that the universe sends us. So I start out this way because my whole life was changed for the good because of you. Stop. Well, it, it was. When we take a look at, <laughs> I feel like I feel like this is sort of a compliment baiting no, guests at this point. No, because <laughs> you. Not you personally, but through okay, your actions, set my life course in terms of a career. Okay. Because you, I'm guessing, totally guessing, it was probably the summer of our junior year, between junior and senior year, that your father ran a small catering company. And he hired you and a gaggle of your friends to work a picnic. And mm -hmm. I was one of those that had the opportunity to, to work that particular day. And if I remember correctly, you and I were the only ones who actually worked. I think everyone else just goofed that off. That could be. I don't, I don't have any memory, <laughs> right? I remember doing it and I remember loving it. And I remember I must okay. have been you know, 16 years old at the time. And I came home with a handful of cash. And I was like, oh mm -hmm. my gosh, this is a thing. And mm -hmm. so it was that moments or that opportunity that moved me to work further with your father. I continued to work, probably the only one of your friends, that continued to work with your dad mm -hmm. for years. I worked with him all through college. I would drive back from Los Angeles on the weekends or on Friday nights when he needed additional help for the catering company. That's what kind of started my career. You've also interviewed somebody else from our class, Monica. Monica and I sat next to each other in computer class probably our junior mm -hmm. year or early our senior year. And she's the one that said Cal Poly Pomona was a beautiful campus. I'd never heard of it before. And senior year, we're looking at colleges. I remember going into my father's office on a Saturday to fill out UC applications. And I saw that Cal Poly Pomona, ding for Monica, had a hotel restaurant program. And that's that's really what set my career moving forward. And it's funny that you had no interest in it before then. And so when you saw that they had the course, you were already interested or is that when you became interested? I was already interested, but I didn't know it. Does that make sense? Because mm -hmm. I mean, when you're 16, mm -hmm. 17 years old, you don't know what the world looks like. You don't know what your career options really are. I just knew that mm -hmm. I wanted something in business world and to find that there was a business related to something that I had been enjoying, thanks to your father, that's kind of what, uh, what moved me forward. So yeah, that was the kind of the first, I don't know that it's serendipitous, but it was certainly listening to the universe and letting those things come together to kind of pick my career. And I never changed my major and I was out in four years. And not only were you out in four years, but you did a, an extremely aggressive program. Do you want to brag about that for a second? Cause I tell everyone about how amazing you are. So you may as well just oh, tell you're the world sweet. too. I don't know that, I don't feel that I'm ever amazing, but I was dedicated. And there were times during college and I tell my students this and they don't believe me where I took 20 plus units and worked 70 hours a week. And it was simply, the attitude of, well, that's what you need to do. I remember being in college and it was probably my sophomore year and I was living in the dorms and I put on a suit and my roommate walks in. He's like, what are you doing? I said, it's career day today. I'm going to get a job. 
What do you mean you're going to get a job? It's career day. There are <laughs> employers covering the quad. I'm coming back with a job today. And that's where I got my first, uh, one of my first full-time career-based jobs was, was on that day. So I've always tried to, when the opportunity presents it, and I'm open enough to see it, I think, and I have to admit that I'm not always open enough to see it, I try and take the opportunity. And that was, that was the day. And I'll be honest with you, that job was Taco Bell. Oh, I, know. I, I worked, I know. I worked yeah, for I a year at Taco Bell, started out as an intern, spent a year as an assistant general manager, but it was a great growth opportunity within my career. Well, you know, memes go around all the time about that everyone needs to work in retail, fast food, a restaurant, something to build character. And that is definitely true. And I don't even know if it's character, but I think that it's important that somewhere in your life, you develop a sense of empathy and understanding for others. And those jobs put you in a situation where you're not in charge and you're going to have bad days and people are going to be jerks. And honestly, I always used to tell my staff, there's a special place in hell for people that are rude to the wait staff. But I think it's an important part of growing for all individuals to be able to look at the world through someone else's shoes. And once you've been in those retail positions or those food service positions, you recognize not only that you're not the center of the universe, but you're talking to people that don't have control. So why are you trying to make their life more difficult? Right. And they're hungry. Yeah. And if they're eating at Taco Bell, they don't probably have a lot of other food choices or a lot of money or something like that. And so it's just, it's a recipe for a disaster. And you never mess with people when they're hungry. That right. was way before the word hangry right. was invented. So I like what you've already done thematically, you know, thinking about your life. But what I wanted to start with actually was what were you like before I met you? Like as a little kid, because you have always seemed sort of the straight and narrow, the person who knows what they want, the driven, motivated, clear eyed, work hard type of person. Lord, and I, had you fooled. I know, oh. I knew. And then as I got to know you more, that then there's like this irresponsible, wicked guy. That comes so out. I'm going to tell you, I, again, <laughs> I don't have a lot of memory of my childhood. My high school, my childhood was not necessarily an easy time, but it wasn't a hard time. I am, have always been introverted. I am a very introverted. And then when I was younger, I was socially awkward. And I think in addition to that, as so many people can certainly relate to, have always had body issues. I was the, and I'm still thin, but I was the skinny kid and beanpole comes total to mind. Total beanpole, right? I had no muscle mass. I had no fat. I was, I was this skinny, skinny kid. And when you have those sorts of, of body issues, whether you recognize it or not, it impacts the way you feel about yourself and it impacts the way that you interact with others because it impacts your level of confidence. And certainly in high school, I didn't have a great deal of confidence. Among a small group of friends, I felt safe, but I certainly was never somebody that was super confident. And when I did come across as confident, I had to work to do that, right? As an introvert, it's hard to be, to socially interact, and especially when you're awkward doing it. So there's a long, long learning curve. And I have to say, hitting 40, I mean, young kids can't understand this. I don't think you know yourself 
I don't think you come into yourself until later in life. And I will say right now, I'm in, I'm in the best place I've ever been in my life. I'm the most confident I've ever been. But I'm also in a place where I'm willing to step back and learn and admit that I don't know things. Yeah. And you can't grow if you don't right. know. And you can't grow if you're not yeah. willing to put yourself in uncomfortable situations or you're not willing to put yourself in other people's shoes. And certainly in today's both political climate as well as social climate, we have to be willing to put ourselves in other people's shoes and step back for a moment and recognize that our life experiences are not everyone's life experiences. So people think and believe completely different things. Totally. Yep. So you you have been this constantly evolving person, it sounds like. I think that's a great way to describe it. And some of that evolution has been challenging. You know, sometimes we fight tooth and nail against the evolution, and sometimes we're really open to it. And, and when I said that I didn't come into myself until I was in my 40s, you know, it was, it was close to 45 before I really, truly came into myself and was able to have, I guess, inner conversations, honest inner conversations about who I am and what I want and become the authentic me which is not to say that I was wholly inauthentic prior to that, but my life has definitely had some twists and some turns, although normal and not as not wholly unusual, I think, for a lot of people. I've never had these terrible life experiences. Right? I listen to your podcast and I hear people who have had experiences in life that I break down and cry as I listen to your podcast. And, and, I'm, and I'm crying for two reasons. One, that they had to go through that as a teenager, as a young adult, that their growth was so incredibly painful, but also that they've gotten to the other side of that, right? Because you've dealt with child abuse and with you know drugs and other addictions throughout some of the conversations you've had with people. And I've not had that, but I've definitely had to accept kind of who I am. So backing up to my story, when I was in college, I met my wife and we got married, had two kids, absolutely adored my wife. She was the first person I really fell in love with. And we had a really great, wonderful marriage. Now, having said that, fast forward now, I'm married to a man. So the progression that gets me there is a combination of self-actualization as well as a lot of serendipitous fate and being open to, to the changes. Because I didn't make that decision easily, and I didn't make that decision fully on my own, if that makes sense. Mm. And I say that because, and, and you know this part of my story, I was married for 20 years and after 20 years, my wife passed away unexpectedly. And that was obviously a very challenging time, right? I have, number one, tremendous grief 
you know, that's my life partner. Right. Number two, now I'm a single dad of two teenagers. Both my kids were in high school at that time. My daughter had just finished her freshman year. My son had just finished his sophomore year. They went to two different high schools. And now I'm trying to figure life out. And as I'm trying to figure life out, I have to come to terms with my own sexuality and things that I've really, I'm going to go back to Monica, things that I put in a box, right? Men in particular, I think, and, and again, I'm not a woman, so I'm not positive about this. This is again, my perception. Men can be very good at putting things in a box and putting them up on the shelf and coming back to deal with them later on. So the idea of accepting that I am gay had been in a box for my life, right? It was something that I thought about when I was younger. It was something that I was confused about, but I also grew up in an era and in a place where that was considered wrong. So I didn't allow myself to to go down that road, if that makes sense. And it was a conscious, nope, not going that way. It was a conscious decision that certainly led to, I have no doubt, stresses through my life that I may not have fully recognized that that's what it was, but it was a conscious Mm -hmm. decision. And I was in a committed, loving, caring relationship. And I was focused on my job. I was focused on my family, raising those kids. So I didn't feel through that part of life that I was ever focused on me. And I think that a lot of parents will agree that time period where you're raising kids, that's your focus. And as the primary breadwinner in a house, the focus is twofold. It is to bring in the income and to do well at your job and simultaneously help support the family and raise the kids. And there is no room in that for really yourself. And it's hard to step back and make the time for yourself without society making you feel like you're selfish. And you don't even know because it's always worse for women, so much worse for women. So yes, I hear you and I'm gr- glad that you recognize it and that you're talking about it. And it's just like, I can't even tell you exponentially how much worse it is for women trying to do it I- all. I can believe it. You know, I've had those, I've had conversations. And again, this is where within society, I can empathize, but I can't fully understand. And Mm -hmm. so those conversations with myself about sexuality, on some level, because you put that in a box, you don't talk about it, right? If we want to look at society today, how long have we put in a box and not talked about social injustice and other issues and been unwilling to have the conversation or to empathize or listen to, to other people? And, and I say that because this last five years or maybe a little bit more, but really in the last five years where I've had the opportunity to, to breathe, if you will. And I don't mean breathing because I've been able to become a more authentic me, although that is certainly part of it, but not having the responsibility of the children. Having adult children is the best thing on the face of the earth, mm-hmm. um, right? And especially mm-hmm. having adult children that have fully left the nest. And I'm not quite there yet, but still you're able to focus on more than just yourself or the day-to-day operations. And the Mm -hmm. quote that has been coming back to my head 
constantly over the last year to three years has been Maya Angelou. When you know better, do better. Yeah. And really trying to do better myself in everything that I'm doing, if that makes sense. It totally does. So, you know, you have one of those lives that I want to pick apart, but I'm always afraid of picking off wounds and scabs and I don't want to hurt you. I can say no. Yeah, you can. And I can edit (laughs) things out. That's right. You know, obviously I knew Diane, love Diane and was shocked when you let me know, you know, that she passed. And I, I still don't know how you got through that widowing time. So that's really a difficult time for a multitude of reasons, right? First of all, grief is hard. And sometimes, I'm not gonna say men have it worse, but I put myself in a position where I was now forced to focus on the children. I focused on my job. And those first six months were were definitely the hardest in terms of dealing with things. And I had a, have a friend who continues to, to kid me occasionally, but you need a sense of control. And within those first two weeks of her passing, that control for me was organization. And I cleaned that house and organized cabinets that had never been organized and put things where I thought that they belonged. Because now there's that slow realization when you lose a spouse that this is yours. This is not ours any longer. And in doing so, um, by the way, I've decided there's a stage of grieving a spouse that requires you to buy new lamps. (laughs) And I, I say that kiddingly, but so when Diane passed away, Within about a month, I was walking through the family room. I looked at the lamps and I thought, I hate those. I've never liked those. Mm. I hope you smashed the oh, fuck gosh, out of them. Oh gosh, they were heavy, marble, gaudy, <laughs> awful. Mm. So I went out, I got rid of those and I, I went to like Ross and I bought these little ginger jar lamps that I thought matched a little bit better the house and, and whatever. Slowly letting my, let's say, stereotypical gay come out at that point, right? I'm concerned about decorating. Mm-hmm. And I totally own that as stereotypical. <laughs> I had a dear friend who about a year ago lost her husband of 40 years, I'm guessing on that number. And about four weeks into it, she told me, I bought new lamps. And I, it just took me mm. right back to that moment of how do you make a place yours through that transition. That transition for me was also extremely difficult because not only am I dealing with grief, not only am I trying to to create the sense of control and take care of my children and make sure that they are in a good emotional space. My mother-in-law had lived down the street, still did live down the street. My sister-in-law lived around the corner. So not only was there constant reminders, but there was also other people that I had to help and other people that I could rely on at the same time. And while all this is going on, within my head, I'm now having these conversations, these ideas. I'm working through the idea that, okay, what does the rest of your life look like? And I don't see it with a woman. And starting to come to acceptance in my own head 
before I can start to move forward. And, you know, you mentioned about you grew up at a time when it was wrong to be gay. And I mean, if you look at the 80s, the 80s were so very gay. <laughs> they, they were, but my family, I was raised in a very religious family and not outside crazy sect religious. We were Presbyterian, but my mother was very religious. My father was, for all intents and purposes, at the level of a biblical scholar. But we also learned through our faith to interpret the Bible a little bit. And I think that that's something that has, has helped me as I've tried to maintain a sense of faith, because I have a very strong faith. I don't know exactly what that looks like. I'll be brutally honest. I don't know. So let me back up a second and say that after Diane passed away, we went to church. We relied on our church family. We went to church as a family more than we had previously. And that was helpful. My son actually felt at that point that he had a calling to become a minister. I remember that. So I forgot that till you just said so it. So think about me starting to go through this change in my life and very religious mother, son thinks he's going to become a minister and all the internal struggles that I'm, I'm trying to deal with at that point. So let's go back to serendipity or whatever it is, whatever, whatever word, word we want to use here. And I don't know that serendipity is it, but I, prior to Diane's passing, had gone back to school. I was working on my doctorate in education. And through that, I met a friend of one of my cohort's friends and who was a minister and who I became very good friends with. And he and I connected because we were going through similar life experiences and similar things. So when Diane passed away, I had somebody that I knew well that I could have conversations with that were faith-based, but were also, he was an Episcopalian minister, also did counseling and was open to having those other conversations and those other ideas. So that really helped me as I looked at moving forward. Have you read the book, The Celestine Prophecy? You know what? I honestly can't remember. It's one of those books that's been around, it feels like our whole lives, and I must have picked it up, but I don't think I ever finished it. But I do know so, roughly what it's about, but go on and tell everyone. So I read that book a little past this point in, in my journey. It was given to me by a friend who I had met serendipitously. And it's the concept of, of the Celestine Prophecy. And for those that know it very well, forgive me, but here's my take on it, is that the universe is there and is interconnected and everything we do is connected. And if you are calm enough and willing enough to listen to what the universe has to say to you, it will guide you in the right direction. And ultimately, it kind of comes to the conclusion that it can take you to a higher plane. And that's not the full direction that I'm going, but this is a time in my life after Diane passed away where I started not only to reevaluate everything, but to be open to anything that came my way and to listen to things that, that came my way. It's kind of 
the idea is kind of based on the the Ray Bradbury Sounds of Thunder, the better, butterfly effect. Oh yeah, that one thing touches another, touches another, touches another, and everything is completely intertwined. And if you're willing to listen to what the universe has to say to you, it will. It's amazing what you'll recognize. Definitely a very. I can't believe I haven't really read that, considering that's basically the theme of the podcast. So there you go. <laughs> So, so you read that before Diane died? No, actually, I read that after Diane died. Oh, that after. was so, and it, and it hit you. It hit you at that time. I bet it hit me because it was given to me. Mm. And so, Diane passes away. We are coping well, I think, as a family. And I now have the opportunity and the need to take care of me. Mm. And now it's a very difficult balance to be a single parent to take care of your kids, but to take care of your own needs and your own exploration and try and move forward. So now it's time to, to meet people. And dating in the world, first of all, I'm, gonna, I'm using air quotes, dating in the gay world can mean something different than dating. So there's that exploration. And in the world of the internet, you can meet a lot of different people. So the internet is where I start to meet people. I end up meeting a couple who, this is where serendipity comes in, who know so many of the same people that I know. Their children are about five years older than my kids. They went to the same high school that my son goes to. They were in the same programs that my son is in at this point in time. And we quickly become very, very close friends. And this is a gay couple who the two men have, at some point, they divorced their wives in the 90s and somehow got almost full custody of all five of their children. Wow. Right? So they have raised five kids, very focused on their family. And to say that they are ridiculously successful in business doesn't begin to describe where they are in life we actually ended up having our wedding at their house on their property. Frank and I, we'll get to that in a little bit. So we meet, we end up having so much in common. And then a couple months later, one of them gives me the book, The Celestine Prophecy, and said, there's a reason we met. Mm, and go I ahead like these people. And, and read this. So he needed the friendship and, and things that I was able to, to offer at that point in time. And I needed their introduction to the world, if you will, into the gay world, into life, into... So my whole mental picture is changing at this point, and I'm not out. So my kids don't know. So it's this couple that ends up getting me to go to Burning Man. Oh, that's right. I remember you went to Burning Man and went wild. Right? So, <laughs> so at that point, we have been friends for probably six months or so. And they're like, we're going to Burning Man. You want to come? Okay. And this is where I made it my goal. When I went to Burning Man, like I trust these two with my life. Hmm. The word no will not be in my vocabulary that week. So that idea of not only being open to what the universe has to offer, but being open to everything at that point in time, knowing, fully believing that I have a safety net that is going to keep me physically and emotionally safe at that point, I was able to grow significantly in that week. My kids are in high school at this point. 
I've told them, as well as my mother-in-law, I'm going on a retreat. <laughs> so I mean, it a, is. It was. <laughs> I went on a week retreat for myself. And so that was, that was pretty wonderful. So Diane passed away in May. And it, I took about six months of grieving and exploration before I started to move forward with some, some I don't want to say new life, but admitting, experimenting, moving forward a little bit, still trying to take care of the family, take care of everything else I need to take care of, but find some time for me. So it was probably nine months after she passed away that I met these two. And then a year after she passed away, I went on a trip with my parents and my parents were supposed to take Diane and I to on a European trip through Norway, right? Norway. Yes. Through Sweden and Norway and, and those, those areas. And it's the one year anniversary. I am it's past the one year anniversary, but I'm in a grieving, I'm still coming back to a grieving place. And one of the most important things about grief that I tell everybody is you have to take care of you and you have to sleep mm. because when you're not sleeping and you become more emotionally raw, you start to go into the dark place. So mm. I was pretty good through that time period of making sure that I got enough sleep and took care of myself so that mentally I was able to, to move forward. Well, in Norway, uh, mm -hmm. the, the sun doesn't go down. The midnight sun, exactly. Right? Yeah. Literally, the sun did not go down or it went down for a half an hour. I mean, you got basically sundown and sun up simultaneously. So it was a little darker for me. A, I'm on a trip that I was supposed to be with with Diane. B, I'm not sleeping, so I'm more emotional. And C, I'm realizing coming out gay and I, I'm there with my parents and I'm certainly not having those conversations with them at this point. So I'm online entertaining myself and I end up meeting online while I'm in Norway, my current husband. I never realized that was the timeline. Interesting. Yes. So we met online and he was, and I don't know that I realized this or not. I thought he was in Sacramento. He was in the process of moving to Sacramento at that point. So he had lived in Portland for uh, more than 16 years. Hmm. He was born and raised in New York, um, upstate New York. And so I met him. And as he tells the story, he's like, we took it really slow, meaning we talked online for weeks before we actually met. Part of that because I'm on the other side of the world for the first week that we're sort of, you know, just sending messages and chatting and whatnot. But it also gave us a chance to get to know each other a little bit on a deeper level in terms of who we were and what we were sort of looking for before we met. I'm not sure that we actually, we don't know what day we actually met for the first time in a restaurant. We remember the restaurant, but the day that that actually happened, I'm pretty sure was after Burning Man because he knew that I was planning the trip to Burning Man at that point, uh, but hadn't gone. So I think it was probably a week or two after Burning Man that we actually ended up meeting in the restaurant for the first time. So, wow. Okay. There's so much in there. So before we get to Frank, before we get okay. that, I, I want to go over that, you know, the world, hopefully 2021 is a different place enough that it's okay to be yes. not just gay, but to be unsure, maybe bi, maybe 
nothing, Absolutely. you know, and as a person who was married to a woman and is now married to a man, was there ever a time that you said to yourself, maybe I'm not gay where I'm not straight, but I am pan, I'm bi, I'm whatever other. That may have been part of the continuum that I traveled through, but no, not really. Okay. I knew that I was gay. I, I've, I've probably known it my entire life, but I was confused and I didn't know how to move forward. And when I met Diane, I found a soul that I loved. Right. Right. So that's, that's the direction that I went. So in terms of that acceptance, right, it's, in, it's also difficult because my wife's mother still lives 13 doors down from me. Oh, wow. And she and I are very good friends. So it's not like there's any pressure on my shoulders, like, oh, by the way, right? Yeah. So that was something that I just didn't want to address or deal with at that point. I didn't want to put that extra stress on the kids. When I started dating, I basically told my kids, I said, yes, I'm seeing people, I'm dating. I'll tell you about it when I find the right person. I am not taking you on a roller coaster of my emotions. So they knew that I was seeing people. That's all they knew. And uh, they were also incredibly self-sufficient. So, you know, you're talking about a, at this point, a junior and a senior in high school who are very self-sufficient. Brad's driving everywhere. So he is completely self-sufficient. He, quite frankly, has always been an old soul. So he was, you know, 40 years old when he was 15. So he was really easy. Katie was relatively easy. She didn't need a lot from me. I, I always tried to check in on her, but she was pretty independent as an individual. So this process of, of acceptance takes me a while before I'm willing to share it with people. And I'll be brutally honest with you. When I met Frank, he knew I was not out. He also knew that at that point we met, I was with my parents on a, on, a, on a European trip with my daughter. So there was never anything that was hidden in those, those early days. And it's somewhat stereotypical, but it's not entirely untrue. Gays are judgy. <laughs> so as awful as this is, and, I, and I, we often say that women are their own worst enemies in terms of taking each other down rather than building each other up sometimes, especially in business and in places of power. I see that a lot. I don't know that it's always true, but it's something that, again, from my perspective, I have often seen. Gays are their worst own enemies, right? Uh -huh. Because there are so many subcultures within the gay community. And so many of us don't necessarily understand or are willing to understand the different subcultures. Drag, for example, mm -hmm. is, is one of those things that a lot of gays are like, I don't get it, right? Because that's not their thing. Mm -hmm. But that's an important part, I think, of that personal growth is to start to recognize that just because that's not your thing, there's nothing wrong with it and help people to embrace who they are. And I think that's been the really great message of certainly from what I've seen in the last 10 years, even before you know Diane passed away, was, was seeing the celebration of individualism uh, within the gay community, within other cultures. And I think that's a really important aspect and something that we should be, be looking at is, is how to build one another up. 
So I meet Frank and I don't feel that I'm being judged, right? Because I'm not out and I'm admitting that, but I'm also admitting that I'm, I'm getting to that point. I just have to go on my own pace. And he is, he recognizes that when I met his best friends um, up in Portland, it was, you know, there's always those friend tests when you're at that point of the relationship. And his friend, uh, one of his friends is like, red flag, red flag, red flag, red flag. I'm like, yes, I see where you're coming from, but I'm getting to that point. So again, I'm very logical. I'm very thoughtful. Frank is the same way. Like he's read all the books on how to come out, um, mm-hmm. how to, when to come out. You don't come out on the holidays. You don't, you know, say pass the turkey, by the way, I'm gay. <laughs> you know, you don't ruin somebody else's holiday, right? Right. It's like you don't propose at somebody else's wedding. There's just things yes. that you don't want to do. So he's was certainly helpful through that process. So fast forward six months, Frank and I've gotten to a point where we have, we've decided that we really like the other person. We've said, I love you. I've decided it's time to tell the kids. So I go to my friends that I mentioned earlier and I call them up. I say, so what are you guys doing tomorrow morning? I said, I want to come over for a cup of coffee. Great. So I show up at their house about seven o'clock in the morning, grab a cup of coffee with them. And I said, I think I'm ready to tell the kids about Frank without missing a beat. One of them goes, that is the most selfish thing you have ever said. Okay. I wasn't expecting that. He says, you let Brad have his senior year. If Mm. Frank is right, he's still going to be there in five months. Actually, I think it was like three or four months. And then he said something that I'll never forget. must've been four months because he said, it's only dusting the house four times. That's ridiculously funny. (laughs) That perception. So, but the but again, I trusted them because they had raised five kids and they were focused on the kids and and how that worked out. So that also gave me in the meantime to start to come out to my parents, to come out to other people, and to get to a more comfortable place where I don't feel like I'm necessarily living in the shadows, which is not where I want to live, right? I want to be an authentic me, even as I'm trying to figure out what the authentic me looks like. So in that time frame, I came out to my parents, which was interesting. It took my mother a while. It took her quite a while to come to terms with it. And I took them both out to, out to lunch or out to dinner. And my mother had gone to the restroom and I told my father. My father's reaction was, but hang out with a lot of guys. I thought maybe. <clears throat> my mother was <laughs> the opposite end of the scale. Oh, Brian, no. And it, her reasoning was, was twofold. One of which was in her head, it was a sin, right? So there's that whole religious aspect. But the other part of it was she didn't want me to be, and, and I guess the best thing to say is, to be in the minority, to have the challenges that minorities have, recognizing our white privilege, to be black, be Hispanic, to be gay, has moments of potential fear, potential danger, right? I mean, to be a black man today, you are always in a state of fear. And for many, many years, gay men lived in a similar, I will not say the same, but a similar world. Now we're in California, so that's not an issue and has never been an issue for me. There are closed-minded people everywhere. everywhere. It's true. Oh, it's so, true. Right. And you mentioned and earlier mean, the 80s, right? 
were were mm. gay and and whatever. Eighties were hard on gays, and I remember vividly again working for your father. The majority of the servers were gay, so I had lots of acquaintances. They weren't really good friends, but they were certainly acquaintances. People that I knew that were gay, and I watched men die of AIDS in that time right. frame. And it, again, another reason at that time where I'm like putting that in the box and moving forward. So I interrupted you. Right, you were going right. to say something. Well, to, to pick up on that, I don't know if you listened to Kurgan's podcast about being gay and going through the whole AIDS mm-hmm. thing. You'll want to go back and listen to that one when you're in a good place to deal with it. Obviously, it's not it's an easy topic, but yeah. So it's weird because, I mean, if you if we want to be really generic, you know, the eighties were culturally, it's cool to be gay or other or alternative, but not in reality, Right. you know, like to have this flamboyant outward thing that's maybe just at the club. And then you put it away very much. You put it on the shelf in the box kind of thing. And then the nineties seemed more like very much don't ask, don't tell right. kind of a thing. And then I don't know if I can put a little label on the first decade of the 2000s, but you know, it in certain circles, and I guess I've been in those certain circles a lot, it's, it's all been okay. You know, it's okay. And yet you don't, we didn't have the verbiage to say things like, you know, white privilege or whatever, you know, back then. And so the verbiage to say, whatever you are, it's okay. It may have not been voiced. It may have not come out at all, or it may not have come out, uh, you know, well, people maybe not have handled it well, even if they had the best intentions. And I'm, I know I've done stuff like that. So it's very... We've all had those microaggressions, right? That we didn't realize we were doing or having at the time. Again, yeah. when you know better, you do better. And that's that's yeah. all we can do. Right. And, you know, it's without, ha- like, this is why it's important that we talk about these things to we make words normal and be able to roll off our tongues more easily. Like I can imagine, and I don't want to put words in her mouth. I hope she does better than I'm about to do, but I can imagine your mother-in-law, you know, your former mother-in-law, Diane's mom, who is obviously still involved in your life. And if let's say you guys go somewhere together and she introduces you and now you're with Frank, the puzzled looks on people's faces and the, how she introduces you, this is my former son-in-law or whatever she says that it's going to be different than just saying, this is Brian and he's in my life and now he's with a dude and I love him and it doesn't matter. See, and I don't know that we would have gotten there. Ah. She was very conservative and Mm -hmm. very focused on her world, right? It was a very narrow view of life for her. So she was the generation and the quintessential individual that I had to back away from many conversations with through the years that used the term those people or they, Ugh. right? Mm-hmm. So to be honest with you, I never had to tell her. Oh. She, she passed away while I was dating Frank. So, oh. so then there's those issues, right? Now I'm trying right. to 
deal with my children and the loss of one of their grandmothers and my sister-in-law, her daughter still lives around the corner. My sister-in-law and I, she loves my children. She is not a fan of me. And Mm. I think that she blames me for no reason for Diane's death because she's Mm. the person who has point blame somewhere without accepting that things happen. It's always someone's fault and it's never her fault. Well, is she religious too? Not particularly. Oh, interesting. Because a lot of times people who are can't deal with being angry at God. And so right. pick someone else to, that's safe yeah. to be angry at. Yeah. So. so moving on to authenticity of self, there is something so beautiful and different about finding a life partner later in life when you know who you are right? Because Mm. when you fall in love, when you get married, when you choose a life partner in your teens and certainly in your early 20s, we've got so far to develop ourselves, right? We're not the Mm. people we were when we were 20. And if the person we pick isn't moving side by side down the same path, growing in the same ways, it can be really difficult. And Diane and I loved each other, but we had definitely grown slightly differently. Okay. I don't think that necessarily would have ended the relationship, but there were challenges and strains. And let's face it, when you've got kids, there are always challenges and strains, right? So finding a partner later in life, when the kids are more mature, when they're grown, Frank likes to tell the story of testing me. And he had been in a, I believe it was a 16 year relationship that had ended a few years prior. He wanted his next life partner. He literally had a checklist of things that this next person needed to have. And mine was more mental, but I think there was still some of that checklist. So one of the things he wanted was an intellectual equal. And I think he's brilliant. I really do. And Lauren, you and I were, were looking earlier at the, the books we have on the bookcase, right? So he has read every one of those and historical biographies and history and, and all of that. So the, one of the things that he did early on was he wanted to test that. So at least this is the way he tells the story. So we st- he suggested reading a book together. So we have since started reading literature together. We each get a copy of a book and we read it and we talk about it and whatnot. At the time, Ghost of a Watchman had just come out. So we mm-hmm. read To Kill a Mockingbird together. Okay. Well, let's stop because the people who are listening don't understand how Atticus okay. Finch you are. And people need to understand that to, I think, get in the right mood for this. It's not just that it is the hot topic book of the time. It's not just that To Kill a Mockingbird is the quintessential American novel that that does so much for so many people. It's that if I had, they were making a new version of To Kill a Mockingbird right. as a movie, you could totally play Atticus Fitch. So I'm a little verklempt at the moment because <laughs> I can to see reference Atticus, is the greatest honor that I can imagine, right? It totally is. So yeah. I'm a little, I'm, I'm incredibly touched by that. And right. Atticus Finch has been listed previously as like the top superhero of all time. So for a lot of people, Ghost of a Watchman was a huge disappointment. Ding, and I ding, don't ding, think, ding, ding. well, first of all, I don't think she ever meant to have that published, right? Hell no, no. I can still 
I can still recognize the original Atticus in mm-hmm. Ghost of Watchmen. He's still there. He will always be there for me. What I see in Ghost of Watchmen is an older gentleman who has been knocked down by reality and is trying to find his balance of reality and and doing the right thing and the moral high ground and trying to get to an end means. Um, I didn't enjoy the book, but I didn't, yeah, I didn't hate it the way other people hated it. I was able to find the center for Atticus as, as I read through that. Oh, good. Um, so yeah, so every year we get each other books for Christmas or, or whatnot, and, and we read uh, the same books. So a couple years ago, we read, uh, we went outside the box and read Anna Karenina uh, together. Mm. And, you know, we just did, did the picture of Dorian Gray and Treasure Island. So just wow. some fun old books that, that we haven't read. So that was one of the things that, that was important to him was an intellectual equal. The other thing that was important to him, and this really makes me laugh, was a financial equal. So we had literally been truly dating for probably four or five months. We sit down in a restaurant, we're having the conversation, and we literally took our taxes, passed them across the table. Oh, that's funny at a restaurant. Yep. And at that point in time, I was like, oh my gosh, like he made 5% more than I did. I'm like, we're rich. <laughs> <laughs> Not, but. But I can, I can understand you go from being a single right. bread earner for a while. And then you basically now looking at doubling yeah. your income. Yes. In Which didn't month. end up happening, but yeah. that's, that's so. a whole nother story. That's, that's also part of the story <laughs> of being your authentic self and having the opportunities to move forward. So once we were together at one point, he quit his job to start his own company, which he is still running and is successful but he's not making the income that he did at the time, but he's happy with what he's doing. He's certainly making a good income, but not at the level that, that he was before. And he tells people, do not go into consulting. It does not pay, right? So there was the intellectual equal, there was the financial equal. There were a bunch of other little things. And I always say that, that I fell in love with him when I went to his house and I opened his refrigerator and instead of a vegetable drawer, there was a cheese drawer. <laughs> full of brie and camemberts and, and these beautiful French cheeses. So we fell in love over the love of cheese and gin. Oh, so I think I must have internalized that because in the past few years, I have started having a cheese drawer myself. It's a beautiful thing. It is. As I was saying, finding that partner later in life, not only are we simpatico in those things, we think tremendously alike, but we also are so comfortable with ourselves. I think that's the part that we miss when we're younger is knowing who you are so that you can continue to grow and encourage others to grow. So it's so wonderful to have a partner that is always encouraging you, but whom you can also encourage and be proud of simultaneously. So you kind of build on, on one another as you do that. And then all of our little idiosyncrasies are ridiculously similar, the way we keep the house clean and make the bed every day and silly little details that they're just who we are. But it shows how you complement each other. Yes. Yes. So as far as how you guys met, was there Mm -hmm. any universe at play in that as well? 
I think there was, right? The fact that I logged on to that website halfway around the world, that he logged on to that website. And this is a, an unusual website that we met through. And I'm going to leave it at that. Okay. <laughs> um, but we're pretty sure that had we not met that way, we still would have met given, again, where I was at that point in time. Because when he first moved to Sacramento, uh, one of the one of his colleagues, she wanted to help introduce him to the gay community in Sacramento. So she took him to dinner at one of her best friend's houses and his husband. And they, you know, hit it off. They talked to one another. But Frank, right about that time, also had met me. So he didn't continue to develop that friendship with the two of them. Well, those two are very good friends with the two friends uh, right. that were my kind of mentors. So inevitably we would have been in the same circle. And when you start to realize the world is nothing but small circles, right? right? The world is incredibly small. So I go on Facebook today and I look at friends and where those connections are and those intersectionalities. And it, it's mind boggling to is. me. It right? is. Yeah, that's why I because, love it. Because so- my best friend from high school, Tim, is a gay man in Portland. So we go up and we, at one point, we go up, I, I reconnect with him at this point. And Frank comes up and he meets Frank. And then we go over from having dinner with Frank uh, to meet Frank's best friends. And, and these are the ones that had, you know, initially done the red flag, you know, mm -hmm. wonderful men. So Tim goes over there with us to meet them and goes, I've been in this backyard before. <laughs> that is the most Tim thing you could ever say. Right? Well, because, and he knew Peter. So Peter was one of his clients. Oh. So Tim sells trees. Mm -hmm. Peter runs a nursery. It had to, yeah, it was all meant to be. And then there's other friends of Frank's that I see talking to Tim on Facebook. I'm like, how do you know Paul and Brian? Or it's, is a very small community, Yeah. no matter where you are in any circle. And I work at a college now, I run a culinary program teaching students. And I remind them that even when I ran restaurants in the San Francisco Bay area, it was one degree of separation between any employee and me. Yeah. So don't burn your bridges. Well, it's, it's, it's a small world, no matter what your bubble is. Right. So I'm glad you brought food back up because I want to go back to that. You mentioned about body issues at the beginning. Yes. And it seems like, and I'm judging here, but it seems like you went into the whole catering stuff because it was fun way to make money. It wasn't necessarily about the food. There was something about the food that attracted me. Okay. Definitely. My mother made dinner every night of my life, right? She, but she was and is a Betty Crocker cook. She can follow a recipe. We grew up in, a, in an era, and certainly I did, where pork chops were freaking shoe leather, right? Mm -hmm. They were cooked well done. I always knew there was something better out there. So I wanted to learn to cook. I wanted to be part of that world. I saw the, there was a, just a draw to the food, to the wine, to the environment that ultimately running a restaurant on the floor is so energetic and so much fun and exhausting. But in that moment, it's wonderful. I tell my students, it's a party every night. Yeah. So you're too old to party every night. <laughs> so 
what has being around food your whole life and being involved in, you know, creating it and creating that experience for people coming to the restaurants and stuff done for a person who had such body issues in the beginning? I don't know that the two are in any way connected. Okay. My working in restaurants, I was always the manager. I was never in the kitchen. So I ran the front of the house. I worked with the chefs. I can cook, but I've never cooked on the line for a living. Oh, okay. So I've, you know, I've managed the service staff. I've, I've managed the environment and all of that, but never on the line preparing the food in that moment. But having that ability to cook is incredibly important in, in, for all intents and purposes for your street cred if you're in the restaurant, right? You need to be able to have those conversations. You need to be able to stand next to the chef. And I can do those things. It's just not something that I've been paid to do for my career. Gotcha. But in terms of body issues, what ended up happening was I hit my mid-30s and I started to put on some weight, not in a good place, right? I started to get a little belly. And so now I'm a skinny guy with a belly. And I, I like that is not going to happen. And that was the point where I started going to the gym because I'd never had to worry about what I ate before. And I mm -hmm. still don't worry excessively about what I eat, but I eat relatively healthy in that we cook everything from scratch. And there's very few processed foods that we eat. It's just, it doesn't bother me to make dinner. It doesn't bother. Frank loves to cook and is a very good cook. So one of us cooks almost every night of the week or our daughter still lives with us. So she will cook occasionally, but it's always fresh. And I started, as I said, I started to work out. So I started to go to the gym and I started to change my body a little bit. So I'm not embarrassed to have my shirt off like I would have been years ago. Well, gotcha. Yeah. So so when you were talking about making everything from scratch, it reminded me of, um, now I can't think of the guy's name, omnivore dilemma guy. Right. Uh, he says, hey, eat whatever you want as long as you make it yourself. I think there's validity in that. I mean, it's about portion control and it's about quality and not having too many preservatives, but it's also about, are you active? The last year and plus has been a game changer for all of us, right? We right. are doing things that we never thought we'd do. And honestly, it again has reminded me how blessed I am that I am capable of cooking and I enjoy cooking. Because if you're stuck in the house for a year and you don't like to cook or don't know how to cook, you're in a world of hurt. Yeah. And, and if you live somewhere like I do, that there's no delivery options, you're in a world of hurt. Right. So we have embraced and enjoyed the cooking over the last year. It's going to be hard to go back to restaurants and, you know, pay $15 for a cocktail when that bartender pours an awfully small drink compared to what my bartender here serves. Um, <laughs> right. But the last year has also changed my activity level where when I was, so I'm teaching, I'm teaching culinary from home. Which is mind boggling. Well, because we're not really doing it. What I'm really doing is I'm teaching management classes from home. We did not mm -hmm. offer the lab classes for the last year. Yeah. We simply could not do a legitimate job. Now, I say that at the community college, because the community college, we are trying to train chefs. So I have to be standing next to you or in the same room so that I can see what you do. I can smell when you burn the garlic from across the room, right? I can, right. I can tell when you need to turn down the heat. And I have to be able to give you those corrections in the moment in order for you to learn as a future chef. I can teach the management stuff online. I have been teaching an intro foods course for the local university 
online, but that's not as skills building as the community college is. So at the university level, it's about reinforcing the theory that we've talked about in the lectures, which is more science-based as opposed to you know, turning down the heat at the exact right moment. But I'm still trying to encourage that in my students there. So that I did do online, but certainly no online classes. So we're going to get back to that. It looks like this summer, at least the online labs. This year has just mm -hmm. been challenging. And I really feel for those people that have not been in an ideal relationship, that have struggled with so many issues that could have come up in the last year, that lost their jobs within the last mm -hmm. year. If nothing else, I have been reminded how blessed I am in so many ways over the last year and our ability to ride out the pandemic, honestly, thriving through most of it. Well, that is good. But yes, I'm with you that it's... Well, and those step back to those first three months, right? When we thought we were only going to be in quarantine for three weeks. Yeah. And everybody I know became an alcoholic right away. <laughs> yeah. And we quickly had to learn that, no, I can't have a quarantini every night of the week. And yeah. trying to find the balance in everything that we do. For me, it's been really important to have good rituals in what we do. So we have either developed or had or now have sets of rituals that revolve around working from home, that revolve around other things that we do in the home. So we certainly have work rituals. We shut the door between our offices when we work. At the end of the day, he closes his blinds. He has rituals to close out the office so that we don't come back into our offices over the weekend. We try not to let work bleed into our weekend. Now I'm teaching online, so I recognize that my students do homework on weekends. I check my email periodically through the weekend so I can get back to emergencies, but I don't respond to my bosses. I don't do other work on the weekends. And we've also had to get into a, a habit of physically taking care of ourselves. I went from running on-campus restaurants, literally I could get my 10,000 steps on my Fitbit every day in my normal daily work. And now I'm mm -hmm. sitting in front of a desk. So, you know, we always talk about books that have come into our lives at the right time. What other books came along at the right time that you want to say, you know, were important in your life? I don't know. You know, anytime we read something, no matter what it is, we're going to look at it through the lens of our current life, probably. So most books that I read touch me in some way, or I just don't read them. I will readily admit I picked up a book a couple weeks ago and I got to chapter four and I didn't like the direction it was going and I put it back on the shelf. I read a lot of business books, a lot of leadership books. Uh, Frank and I have a lot of discussions about, about those books. Simon Sinek's The Infinite Game. I haven't read it, but I know of it. But it's, it's that same listen to the universe. And so I was telling Frank, I said, okay, so you're just reading that book, but you know, 10 years ago, Otto Schumer came out with Theory U, which is a leadership book that talks about that same thing of being able to get to your authentic self to a point where you can listen to the universe, allow the universe to speak to you, and then move forward. 
So when you talk like that to your kids, maybe, maybe you always have, or maybe, you know, the quality of talking like that changed when you came out to them, what is their reaction? Is it, is it always been like, yeah, yeah, dad, whatever authentic self, or has it been more like, wow, we really get to see you living this authentic self. And so it's not just words. So when I came out to my kids, remember, I listened to that advice. I waited till after Brad graduated the day after Brad graduated. And actually, here's, so the funny thing is the day after Brad graduated, he was too busy to deal with me. So mm-hmm. I took Katie out to breakfast and told her, and she came out to me. Ah. So that has helped her become more authentic as well. And certainly, you know, I don't know how that would have played out had I not come out to her. Wow, but, so yeah. there's, there's that whole thought process. So the next day... I take my son out to breakfast and I tell him and his reaction was, yeah, I was talking to Gigi about that. We thought maybe. Mm. So, you know, it was when we got married, my son performed the ceremony. Katie walked Frank down the aisle. Frank's sister walked to me Uh and I'm using the aisle euphemistically. By the way, that is the most beautiful thing about a gay wedding is there's no rules. There's not, oh, you know, yeah. hundreds yeah, yeah. of years of tradition. So we had no aisle. We had all the chairs set up in a semicircle, you know, like uh-huh. 10 rows back and, and a kind of a amphitheater style seating. And we walked down the back towards the chairs and then we split and took a different direction to get up to the front. But there was no aisle. It was everybody is together. That's yeah. really cool. So Bradley went and got ordained yes. just for this. Yep. Very Did cool. Brilliant job of the ceremony. I mean, just an amazing job. We wrote the ceremony. Well, that's really cool. So I love the big picture in this whole saga is about lovely Venn diagram of your lives and where you've overlapped and how people have come together to, and this is a gay stereotype, but really make a beautiful world. I mean, you've always been good at making this a beautiful world or experience. And I think that that's this fruition of it. I will readily admit I am the happiest I have ever been. And which let's face it also comes, that's where the box is also comes with that sense of guilt that I am somewhere because I lost my wife, but where I am here now is the authentic me incredibly happy and able to give more to other people. And I think that's what I really enjoy is to be in a place in the world where I'm not worried about me anymore. I'm not worried as much about my children. I still you know, need to help and encourage and I need to get Katie off to the next level. But I have the support from Frank as he has the support from me to make changes to grow and to help others. And that's what I feel like I'm, I'm enjoying right now. The mm-hmm. next step for me is to maintain status quo and be able to continue to give back. Now we're at the point of our lives where we need to be giving back and making good change and making good trouble. Yeah. Very well said. Well, and it's so important that until you are happy with your authentic self, you can't truly give back to other people, right? So it's hard to accept others. When, if you haven't accepted yourself, it's very difficult to accept others. 
Right. Otherwise you're just trying to control them and control situations. And the other challenge that now comes as we continue to grow, even once we are happy with who we are, there is always a tension between growth and the uncomfortableness that comes with growth. Right. It has to, if you're always comfortable, then nothing is developing. Nothing is new. So becoming comfortable with the uncomfortable. Yeah. To not panic and run away from it. Exactly. Well, I have kept you quite long enough, but I always enjoy our time together. I have enjoyed this immensely. Thank you so much. And I hope one day to meet Frank and I hope it's very soon. I'm sure that it will be. Okay, Revelers, I really hope that it really has meant a lot to you to hear Brian's story. Uh, Therapy did not come up much, which is surprising for us, huh? But as you know, my sponsor is BetterHelp. That's betterhelp.com. And you know, therapy might be right for you. You might be struggling with something that you think no one that you know wants to talk about or is qualified to talk about or wants to when you're available. And you know what? They will find you a counselor who is available when you want to talk. So I only get a little money in the pocket if you sign up and you do get 10% off of your first month's membership on betterhelp.com. Use the code REVELREVEL when you sign up and I will appreciate it. And you can also support the pod by going to our list of books on the website that every, every episode has a list of books that we cover. And if you buy any of the books through my links, I also get a little kickback from that too. I am still looking for people to be on the pod. I've got some openings in July, August, and September. So if you or anyone you know wants to talk about your life stories in detail, particularly if you have somebody in mind who is under 30, I am still looking for anyone who is under 30 who wants to talk about this stuff. I would love to branch out to the younger population on the podcast and I need your help to do it. So please share, 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 tell everyone you know about this awesome podcast, as well as like, follow, subscribe, and leave a review. Many of the podcast apps have places for you to put a review, and I would really appreciate it. I've only got like one on each platform. I need more. So please help your friend out here. And we will talk again soon.